Well, good morning. Great, great to see you all together. Let's uh, pray and we'll jump into the Word together. Well, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for this opportunity to reflect more deeply on what you have given us in your Word. And we, um, we're conscious that as we come to this time, we come from many different contexts and backgrounds with all kinds of stresses and strains. And we do pray, please, that you would speak to us uh, through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that you would, um, you would touch us deeply with the truth of who you are and what you've done, that we might be stirred, helped and encouraged to live lives that do please you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, as you've heard, we're beginning Summerfest, or tomorrow it really kicks off in full measure, but today it's sort of the team's arriving, everything's beginning to happen, and we're about to start a season, as you've heard as well, in the next month that's particularly focused on mission. I mean, all the time we're looking to bring the gospel to people around us and help people come to know the things of Christ. And so with all of that in mind, we've chosen a passage this morning that kind of has some continuity with last week. You remember last week we looked at the book of Revelation, we looked at one of the letters to the churches, where we picked a passage this morning that kind of carries that on, um, but adds something that I think is particularly appropriate to the season we're in as we're coming into this time uh, of a focus on mission. And it's from, again, the book of Revelation, of course, Revelation chapter 5. We're very conscious it is a terrifying book for many people, that as you hear the idea of looking at the book of Revelation, you kind of break out into sweat and you kind of go, it's got beasts and monsters and plagues and blood and confusion and all kinds of imagery and you don't know what to do with it. And uh, It really is a very unusual book, an apocalyptic uh, piece of writing. And, uh, and so many people are reluctant to look at it, but of course it really is quite profound and wonderful when you start to get a handle on what's going on and what's being said. And I've got a promise for you this morning. My promise is this, that uh, as we focus on Revelation chapter 5, and particularly I want to focus with you on one word in verse 9, so if you've got your Bibles, just open up to chapter 5 of Revelation verse 9, and if you haven't got a Bible with you, uh, no shame. But why haven't you got your Bible with you? Bring it. This is the year to bring your Bible along. Uh, make sure you bring it along with you uh, next week. But you look there at verse 9. I want, what we want to do is focus on one word there. It's the word new. Do you see that? And they sang a new song. I want to take you through the meaning of the word new. And here's the promise that if we can understand properly what the word new means in its context, I'm going to make a promise that your whole life will be transformed that you'll see the whole world differently, that you'll see things with clarity you've not noticed before. It really is quite powerful to understand that word new in its context. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, look, I know what the word new means. Uh, I mean, I've got a dictionary definition here. Of course, it just means something that's not existed before, something that's not been seen before, seen for the first time, a new thing. So the meaning of the word is not that hard to get hold of. Um, But when you see it in its context, wow, it just opens up a whole new way of understanding life. And that's where I want to get this morning. Um, So let's do it in context. To put it in context, we're going to go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, and work our way through to chapter 5, verse 9, very quickly. So I promise we'll get there pretty quick. Come back with me to chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling, that's what this whole book is. It's uh, it's, uh, as if God, for John, the apostle, has pulled back the curtain on existence and helped him see what's behind the physical, 
what's behind the apparent world around us, into behind all of that is a deeper truth, a deeper reality, an unveiling. That's what this is, a revelation from Jesus Christ. Uh, One of the big things that emerges when you get uh, the revelation of what truly is the case, chapter 1, verse 12, you see a revelation of Jesus in his exalted state. Uh, He is the glorious and great one. You then get the letters uh, to the churches, chapters 2 and 3, that we looked at last week from that risen Lord Jesus to his church. And you now come to chapter 4. And you get particularly another insight into the behind the curtain, what's really going on in the universe that we live in and the existence that we have. And what emerges is a draw-dropping insight into the fact of God's control. So have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. So we've been, we've been opened up to come into the heavens to see what's going on. There's a door opened, and a voice I heard first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was the throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So when he pulls back the curtains on existence, what he sees in heaven is a throne, someone sitting on it, and what follows, uh, verse 3 and 4, is a series of... um, Uh, connected ideas around the one on the throne that's full of glory, power, majesty. All the images from a revelation of God and his power from the Old Testament are dropped here to talk about the throne in heaven, verse 5, the flashes of lightning, the rumblings and peals of lightning and so on. Um, And then um, you see verse 6, Uh, Around the throne, living creatures, and around the living creatures, 24 elders. You see this vision of the throne in heaven. And it's just worth pausing for a moment to notice what's happening here. As John sees and is given to see the throne room, he is given then to see that there are creatures around the throne, and then outside of that there are these 24 elders, so verse uh, 6 and 7, And then uh, these creatures are praising their God, our God. Uh, You look there at verse 8. Day and night they never stop saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So there's praise that's happening with the living creatures that fall down before God. Verse 9. Whenever living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. And if you come through to chapter 5, verse 13, you'll find at the very same time, every living creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them says, to him who sits on the throne. Oh, sorry, verse 11, you've got thousands upon thousands and ten thousands and ten thousands of angels. What do you have here is the four living creatures praising God, 24 elders, all living creatures, the angels in the myriads of all the angels, all praising God. It's like this kind of Mexican wave of praise that rolls out and then back in again. And the point that's being made? God's in control. God's in control. The universe may look like a great mess. It might be that things seem to be against God. It might be that things are looking like they're out of control and that God's not in touch. But he does rule. He is seated on the throne. Everything that has eyes to see praises him for who he is. 
He does manage the universe with every moment and every instant and every word. He is the glorious God. All is right in the heavens is the message that's given by this revelation to John. That was a great encouragement to John because he was in prison on the island of Patmos at the time this vision came because of the Roman Empire and its opposition to the Christian faith. It was a great encouragement to him to see, actually, despite appearances, God is on his throne. All is, all is moving towards the purposes that God intends. And it's a great encouragement to us, I dare say, as well. Uh, I don't know what you brought here this morning, what you've come with. Uh, I know for many of us, Christmas is often a great time for many people, but it's also often a terrible time. So you live with the loss, perhaps, of family. You live with dysfunctionality and hurt. I know some of you are actually were hoping for a quiet Christmas away from family because of the pain that family brings for you. You might be coming with all kinds of stresses financially, health and so on. Just to say, this is not the main point of this morning, but just to say, your God, our God, is on the throne. He is ruling. Uh, everything is moving towards the plan and purposes he intends. He is working all things together for good of those that love him. He has your life in his hands. It's a great encouragement to look behind the circumstances, to see the unveiling of what truly is the case. Be encouraged. Now, there's a particular shape to the praise that happens in this kind of Mexican wave of rolling in and out of praise. Have a look with me particularly there at chapter 4, verse 11. Now, this is all context. You remember we're coming to the word new. But chapter 4, verse 11, you get the particular shape to the praise. I want you to do some comprehension with me here in a moment. Look at... Um, uh, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Comprehension question. Why are they praising God? Why is he worthy of praise? What does verse 11 say? That's good. Say it with confidence and boldly. Because he, because he created all things. He created all things. Do you see that there in verse 11? You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? Because you created all things. You created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Now, notice the shape of the praise. It's a praise because God from nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing, brings the universe into existence. Not as, as if he's an object and the creation's an object and there's two objects now. No, no. God is the author of the story, the story that only exists by the very thought, word and intention, the will of the author, there's so much difference between who the author is and the story that he writes. God is so distant, so other, so transcendent. He is worthy of praise because out of nothing we exist by his will. Now that song of praise, verse 11, has been sung eternally. It's a song that will be forever worthy of, of, of a, a, a praising God with, that he's the creator but then we come to chapter 5. In chapter 5, something extraordinary happens, something astonishing, something breaks the pattern 
of eternity. Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now most people understand, I think quite rightly, that the idea of the, the, the scroll and the seals is an image of God's purposes going forward and they're rolled up, sealed. And so uh, whilst ever they remain sealed and rolled up, God's purposes are unable to move forward. But that's the context we have. Verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, move God's purposes forward? But here's the tension in heaven. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. There's a scroll in God's hands, his plans, purposes. It needs to be opened, but there's no one worthy to open it or even look inside it. There's great distress, verse 4. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now this tension is eventually resolved with the wonderful declaration in verse 5 that there is someone worthy. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. What we're told about is the conquering, powerful figure of the line of the tribe of Judah, who, verse 6, when John turns to look at him, sees as a lamb, looking as though it had been slain. It's one of those, um, one of those greatest jarring images that you'll find in the Scriptures. The Bible has this poetry about it that really is quite wonderful. And uh, it's, it is worth just reflecting on this for a moment. Um, we're told of this great conqueror, this warrior, this powerful ruler, the lion. And John turns to see this magnificent figure and looks down to a lamb. Not even a grown sheep, but a lamb looking as though it had been slain. And it's meant to jar. Do you know, have you ever found yourself um, being told about someone who's hugely influential and massively significant and... Uh, Really, you know, very powerful in all that they've done and so on. Um, I, I shared at 8.30 this morning, actually, we've got... Um, you remember we farewelled in the last month or so a couple of our senior staff, so John O. McEwen and Dave Jensen, um, Steve, off to other ministries to continue to grow and encourage. So we've lost a number of our senior staff and we farewelled four or five of our MTSs uh, who were going off into Bible college and ministry, they left a big gap. Well, here's the great thing. We've got a couple of staff coming to replace them. One of them is a man called Sully, Duncan Sullivan, and his wife, Francesca. But here's the thing. You, we, we saw all that loss, all that leave, and we've replaced all of that with Sully. <laughs> but here's the deal. When you meet Sully, you're going to find yourself going... I thought you'd be bigger. Now, I tell that because Sully told that at 8.30, so I feel I have permission to do it. But, you know, you hear about some great power and you've kind of looked to see and you thought, I thought you'd be bigger. Well, that's what John does. He hears of this great triumphant one, this great warrior king, turns to see, and it's a lamb, looking as though it's been slain. Now, that vision seems so out of step with the picture painted, except when you realise that in God's universe, the thing that makes someone great, the thing that makes someone triumphant, the thing that makes someone spectacular in God's universe, 
when you realise that that is sacrificial service, humble sacrificial service, when you realise that it's the humble giving of yourself over to God's purposes that make you triumphant and great, then you see that the image is hugely fitting. It's the lamb looking as though it had been slain who is the triumphant one because he's the one who gave himself in sacrificial service in obedience to the Father's will. That's what makes him the triumphant and great one. So the the whole image kind of communicates this in a very wonderful and powerful way, but we're still not yet at the key idea. Come with me a few verses further into the heart of this passage, or at least the thing that I want to point out. When you they see verse 6, the lamb, looking as though it had been slain, and then verse 8, oh, verse 7, he went, the lamb, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying... Now, we're up to our word new, but I want to actually go forward and just unpack the song before we come back again to the word new. What's the song that's sung? Well, the song, verse 9, that they sing is that you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they'll reign on the earth. Now, again, comprehension. Why is the lamb worthy to take the scroll and open the seals? Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. Do you see? See the pattern. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honour and power because you created all things. You are worthy, the lamb, to take the scroll because you were slain. Very important to notice this. It's a statement of fact in the first instance that the lamb was slain. It's simply a statement about history where Jesus, as an historical fact, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried. It's a fact. He was slain in the most gruesome way on a hill outside of Jerusalem. It's a fact of history, time and space. But what follows is an insight into the impact of that event. What Jesus' death did was something wholly beyond imagining. That humble death, full of shame and ignominy, him giving himself up over to the cross, did something, verse 9, it purchased for God persons from every tribe, language and people and nation. He died in a way that did something beyond any other death. The fact is, people die. Men, women, children, tragically. Death is part of our existence. Um, But this one death, 2,000 years ago on a cross, did something. It made a difference in a profound way. Something happened in his death that happened in no other person's death. He died because the sin of the world was placed on him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He died precisely because a transfer happened. 
You and I die because the wages of sin is death. Jesus died despite having no sin. But he died because he took upon himself the sin of others. He accepted the guilt of humanity upon himself and the judgment that that deserves and so suffered humanity's fate. And he did that in our place so that any who look to him and throw themselves on his mercy and put their faith and trust in him might have his righteousness gifted to them. We give him our sin and guilt. He goes to hell for us as our substitute so that we might receive the gift of forgiveness and righteous standing before God and so be enabled to stand in eternity accepted by God, the Holy One. He dies so that we don't have to. That's biblical Christianity, by the way. Again, not the point of necessarily this morning, but biblical Christianity is not get better as a person and God might have you one day. It's not turn over a new leaf and if you turn it over enough, God might accept you one day. It's we've got no hope. The the only possibility is that a saviour takes our sin for us in our place upon himself so that his gift of forgiveness might be given to us so that we might be saved, not earn it or deserve it, but be given it as a grace gift. Biblical Christianity is all about a saviour who rescues the unworthy. Now, more than this, the result isn't just that people are purchased for God, but they're made a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And it's a kingdom and priests that come from every tribe, language and people and nation. What we find wonderfully in the death of Jesus is the very means by which people from every nation, every ethnicity, every colour, every cultural background can be united as one, can come together without reference to judging each other by the colour of their skin. We have something extraordinary, a powerful message to offer our world where there is the possibility of oneness for all humanity through the merits of the death of Jesus. Now, with all of that as background, note the word new. This song, verse 9, is called a new song. Now, what does it mean calling it a new song? Well, what's the meaning of the word new? Well, the meaning of the word new is very simple. It's just something that's not existed before, something that's not been seen before, a new thing. But, but, but. When you add the word new to the word song, you trigger a recognition of the history of that phrase. New song is not the first time that phrase has existed. New song is used often in the Old Testament. And it's used in the Old Testament not necessarily as a reference to just the newness of the song. This is where I'm going. Come with me to Psalm 98. Keep a finger there in Revelation. But come with me to Psalm 98. Now, I was converted later in life, and when I joined uh, my local church... Um, we would often have Psalm 98 read out to us when we were about to learn a new song. So Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. Church, we're going to sing a new song today. We're told to sing new songs, so we can't keep singing the old songs. We've got to sing new songs, because the Bible says so. And so. And I thought, okay, sounds right, it says sing to a new song. But what I didn't notice, and what I didn't learn to many years afterwards, that the language of new song there is not just the song that's new, but a song that has a new tone about it. You read with me. 
Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. He has revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp. Do you see what's being said? It's not just sing a new song. It's sing a new kind of song. Because a new thing has happened. A new thing has happened is the work of God to save now. And so burst into a jubilant song, a new song. Not, not a song of lament or mourning anymore, but a new song. A song of joy, of celebration. That's what it means. You, you see, <laughs> um, you, you come with me and I'll show you another passage that says, picks it up as well. Isaiah 42. Come to Isaiah 42. You'll get the same idea. This is just to demonstrate this phrase, new song, has a history. Have a look there at verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. But the context, verse 5, talks about the creator, the creator of the heavens and the earth. But verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives and release those in the dungeon. Sing to the Lord a new song, because salvation's coming through the servant, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, who will come and bring this great new salvation. So when God says, sing to the Lord a new song, he's talking about Marking a new moment in human history. A new thing that God is doing. It's not just sing a song that hadn't been sung before. You see, get this. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they burst into song, but they burst into a new song. And yes, it's a song that hadn't been heard before. But it's not like the 24 elders and the four living creatures were standing around at morning tea with a cup of coffee in their hands going, man, if I have to sing that song one more time, I, I'm out of here. I'm going to go and find a new church where they sing different songs. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy. I've been singing it forever. Can't we do something new in this place? That's not been happening. They've been delighted to sing Revelation 4.11 for all eternity. They're not hankering for something new. They sang a new song, yes, it hadn't been heard before, but they sang a new song because something new has happened in the universe. The new song marked a new stage in the movement of eternity. A song that had been sung for all eternity has now been eclipsed. A new song is now sung in heaven. Get that. That's the big point this morning. The pattern of eternity has been broken. Time isn't just going on and on the same in the throne room of heaven. It changed. Now, we're the change culture. So we find ourselves saying, big deal, something's changed. We like change. We don't get 
we, want, we get bored if everything's the same. So good on them for doing something new. No, 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 no. The old song was worthy of eternity, having sung it and singing it and ongoingly singing it. God will always be worthy for praise because he created. That, that song is eclipsed. That a new song is sung is of immense significance. And this is my whole point this morning. A new song is sung, it's astonishing. What could change the heavens and the song they sang? And this takes us to the heart of this passage. What could cause the heavens and the very throne room of God to change the song it sang? What could cause that change? The death of the Lamb of God, who purchased by his blood men and women from every nation, tribe, language and tongue for God. The death of the Lamb that saved eclipsed the song that had been sung for eternity, the creation song is eclipsed by the redemption song, by the blood of Jesus. Do you see this? Do you see the, do you see the implications of this? I've got now three mini-sermons to preach, explaining the implications of that fact. So settle in. Let me take you through them. The first... Sermon. When you see what's happened in the throne room, that the new song has been sung, that's eclipsed the creation song, what it shows you is, firstly, the worth of Jesus. Now, I trust that you've always thought Jesus is worthy. But what we find is a song sung about the slain Lamb of God pushes the wonder of creation to one side. Creation's astonishing. Creation ex nihilo is astonishing. But salvation? No, actually, the manner of salvation, the self-giving love of the Son of God, the fact that he gave himself up to be slain by taking on himself the sin of the world in humble service of the will of his loving Father who desired the salvation of sinners, that Jesus did that makes him worthy of eternal praise. It made the heavens change their song because of the astonishing worth of the Saviour who died. Now, as I say, it may not be saying something amazingly new that Jesus is worthy, but what I'm hoping to do this morning is show you from another perspective that what happened back then outside the city of Jerusalem shook the universe. The heavens were impacted by the death of that one man on the cross. Eternity held its breath. The angels longed to look into it. Jesus' worth as a saviour is beyond imagining. And so, brothers and sisters, anything that minimises the death of Jesus, anything that diminishes the death of Jesus, anything that crowds out the death of Jesus as the means of our salvation is anathema. Works theology does that. Any suggestion that it's by my efforts that I can earn salvation 
diminishes the worth of the Saviour who's slain by his blood to rescue us. That's why the Apostle Paul, I take it in Galatians 1, is so horrified by a works theology. It's not just that it won't work, it's the honour of God at stake, the glory of the Saviour who does it all for us. And so I want to encourage you, first sermon, to know the humble gratitude that is owed to our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, the significance of the cross, first sermon. Second mini-sermon, the need we have to be saved. Such a work was necessary to purchase men and women for God. Such a thing was necessary to purchase men and women for God, the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. That's what was necessary. The cost of God's own blood in the person of his Son was necessary to purchase men and women for God. That means there's only one hope for salvation, and it's in the death of Jesus. There is no other way to be saved because of what happened back then, we were assured of it. And let me illustrate this for you. I think I've used this before, but it's, I love this illustration. It's one of the only good ones I've ever come up with. It's a, a man called Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston uh, was a, a young canyoner, an adventurer, and he was canyoning in Utah, I think, one of the canyons in Utah, rappelling down a cliff face. And uh, when he was on his way down the cliff face, he placed his, his hand in a particular position and a massive boulder rolled over onto his hand and jammed it between two rocks, pinned in place. Um, now, true story, Aaron was there pinned for five and a half days. He's written a book. Uh, and a movie's come out called 127 Hours to represent the five and a half days. He was pinned there. Now, trigger warning, I'll tell you how he escaped. So if you want to close your ears, I know some of you are squeamish. I don't know your problem, what's wrong with you? But anyway, um, he's there for five and a half days and then eventually, just to remember, actually, this canyon in Utah is middle of nowhere. Right? No one goes, it's just completely wilderness. It's not as if buses come through regularly or something like this, right? It's just empty. And so what does he do? After five and a half days, he bends his forearm and breaks the bones of his arm, then gets out a pen knife that he had in his pocket. Yeah, it's that bad. And um, it's blunt, but nonetheless, he, he saws his way through the skin, flesh, sin. Can I make it sound as bad as possible, right? Cuts his arm off, right? Leaves his hand pinned in the rock, pulls his arm together like this, repels the rest of the way down the rock, hikes a thousand miles, swims across an ocean and, <laughs> and finds his way back to safety and survives. And it's an incredible story of courage and fortitude and all the rest. And he then goes on the speaking tour. He's written a book, he's, there's a movie. He then did the motivational speaking tour, as only Americans do. And so uh, read around the world um, sort of explaining the, the, what he was able to do. Um, but just I want you to imagine this. With, what do you think Aaron Ralston was doing for the five and a half days where he was pinned like that? What do you think he was doing? What would you do? For the first day, you'd be going, oh, ouch, yeah, right, God. <laughs> but the second day, you'd be screaming out, you'd be trying to get help, you'd be trying to move, you'd be trying to get your hand, you'd be doing all kinds of things, right? After five and a day, he cuts his arm. Now, just imagine this, he's on the speaking tour, 
and he, uh, he's delivered on a platform to a thousand people this incident and what's happened. He's left his arm behind and under this pin of this rock. And a young man comes to, the, uh, to, the, to him at the end of it and says, Ah, oh, look, I think I know where that all might have happened. It's Utah, that canyon. It's called the canyon. And he says, Yeah, that's the place. And he said, It's that, um, it's that shape of rocks that, ro- yeah, that's the place. He said, I've been there a lot. I've canyoned there a lot as well. And the rock that fell on your arm. Did it look like this, this and this and have this shape? And Aaron says, yeah, that's the rock. And he said, you know what? I found over the years that if you just push the rock like this, it rocks back over again. <laughs> now, what do you think Aaron Ralston would do? He'd go... Oh. Actually, no, he'd go... Because that's, that's gone, right? But he'd be going... Like, wouldn't he be going, what was I thinking? Of course... Now, that would never have happened. Why would it never have happened? Because what was Aaron Ralston doing for five and a half days? Pushing that rock every which way. Doing everything he could to try and push it that way and lift it back. Do you know, eventually they went back and recovered his hand. It took like 20 men with a whole bunch of things to lift the rock up. He was never getting out of that rock. And he took five and a half days to do the most drastic surgery himself to go through that pain because there was no other way. You get it? Now, here's the deal. That God the Father sent his only beloved son to be slain on a cross to purchase men and women for himself tells you what? There is no other way to be saved. What was God doing for all eternity except going, is there another way? Is there another way? Or as if he would, but... The fact that God paid such a price tells you there was no other way to be saved. Otherwise, he wouldn't have paid such a price. Do you see what I'm saying? The point is this. To front up before God and have him say, why are you here unforgiven? And respond like this. Well, I just thought that if I was good enough, it would all be okay. While Jesus stands there with the scars, having been slain to purchase people because there was no other way. What do you think I was thinking that I did that if you could just be decent and it all be okay? The cross tells you there's no other way to be saved. Brothers and sisters, there's no hope for people outside of Jesus. We need to say this with tears in our eyes, but there's no hope by any other religion Otherwise, why did God send his only son to suffer like that? There is no hope, which is why we give ourselves to Summerfest. It's why we give ourselves to preaching the gospel. It's why we send missionaries overseas. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There is no other hope. And whilst ever we imagine there is, we will, we will give very little to the task. We will pay very little attention. The second sermon. The need we have to be saved, and the only way to be saved, is through the death that we must do Summerfest. We must bend every effort through this January, through this next year. Third sermon, and a more complex one. First sermon, the worth of Jesus. Second sermon, the need we have to be saved by the blood of Jesus. Third sermon, the centrality of the cross in your life. Now, this is tricky to get hold of. 
We are born into a very impressive world. Creation is impressive. God as creator is an astonishing truth. Our experience of life is constantly keeping creation truths before us, the beauty, the richness, the joy to be had, the pleasures in life around us. We're in a beautiful place. It keeps, keeps calling out to us the beauty and wonder and the greatness of creation. But heaven is focused on a new thing, the cross, God's work to save. And that work to save eclipses creation for its wonder, its centrality. It's the lamb who is now on the throne throughout the book of Revelation. 28 times the language of the lamb is spoken of through the book of Revelation. It's the word used of Jesus constantly through this book because... It reminds us of Jesus, the Saviour, the cross. He is an eternity with scars that forever mark his resurrection body, reminding the universe of his readiness to humble himself to the will of his Father at such a cost to save sinners. That has an impact on how we think about life now. In fact... It ought to change the shape of the way we think about life. When we're born into our world, we grow up creation-centred. We're encouraged to think about your one life, beautiful creation, make the most of it. Enjoy as much as you can. And you can become a Christian, but Christianity can end up being a creation-centred experience where... Salvation was all about me being saved back to God to now enjoy creation again, to enjoy it more fully. And so, yes, there'll be praise for the salvation and the cross of Christ, but it'll be peripheral. It'll be an add-on to me being helped to encourage and enjoy creation some more. So the centre of my life is creation experiences and enjoying and around the periphery is thank you for the Saviour and praise God for this, but back to creation-centred Christianity. But the Christian life is meant to be cross-centred with the enjoyment of creation on the side. We're meant to view life now through the lens of the cross, through the fact that God the Saviour sent his Son to die, be slain and have his blood shed. At the heart of the universe, in the, in the throne room of God, is the praise now for the Lamb. At the centre ought to be for us a growing awareness of the cross-centred heart of God, who at heart created and in that context redeemed, which is now the central concern that he has. His desire is to seek and save the lost. His heart is for the men and women of every nation to be saved. This is the heart that pushes aside all other concerns. And creation becomes the context within which this happens. To be enjoyed, yes, there's nothing wrong with enjoying creation. God gave us all good things for our enjoyment. But not as the centre, with mission added on. But with winning the world at the centre... We're to see life through the cross, God's greatest act, greater even than creation, greater even than the incarnation. The glory of it, the work of salvation, shout for joy, he saves. 
This ought to flow from the very deepest part of who we are as it flows from the deep part of who God is. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now I've got four implications for you that flow from this one very quickly. First one, this should shape your prayers, it should shape your giving, it should shape your church attendance, it should shape your energy. You see, it's possible to be a creation-centred Christian who prays in a certain way, gives money in a certain way, has energies focused on certain things and so on, and it's possible to be a cross-centred Christian. Which are you? A creation-centred Christian will pray mostly about the things of this world, your concerns, your health, your travel, your finances. You'll pray about family. Some of those you need to pray, pray about all things. But that'll be the centre. And then sometimes you'll pray about mission, evangelism, gospeling. A cross-centred Christian will pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us from sin. And give me my daily bread. But then get back to kingdom concerns. The Lord's Prayer is a gospel, Christ, church-saving prayer before it's anything else. Cross-centred Christians pray about that as their centre. What is the centre of your prayers? Uh, Your giving. Creation-centred Christians save up their money for their house, their travel, their toys, and have some to give. Cross-centred Christians think first and foremost about how can I be sacrificial and generous to the cause of the gospel and then enjoy what God has still given me. Very different. Which are you? Focus on church. Church is the fruit of the work of the cross. The cross occurred so that we might be gathered, so that that you attend, if you're a cross-centred Christian, will be the centre First thing you think about. If you're a creation-centred Christian, church will be an add-on. Which are you? And lastly, your energies. Where do they go? Brothers and sisters, we've got Summerfest this week. Don't grow weary of doing good. We've got a month of particular mission. Be prayerful. Make it the centre of your prayers. Give your energies to this task. Give financially to this purpose because this is the heart of who God is. It is to be glorious to caught up in these things because that's what matters so much to God. Pray for his blessing through this season, we ask. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we do pray, please, that you might work through this season, that you, uh, who has has given the life of your only son to save, that you might bless every effort to bring the gospel to the world around us. And we pray, please, for much fruit in the salvation of souls during this season. In Jesus' name, amen.